1: This is a CBC Podcast.
2: Hi, I'm Bob McDonald. Welcome to Quirks and Quarks. On this week's show, fishing fleets that scrape the seafloor to capture their prey are releasing a large amount of carbon while doing it.
3: So to put that number into perspective... That is about the same amount of total CO2 emissions that the United Kingdom produces every year.
2: And researchers explore common sense and discover it isn't. Common sense is remarkably rare
0: because, in fact, there isn't a thing that we can point to. There isn't a body of knowledge that we can point to that everyone really agrees on.
2: Plus, tracking a woolly mammoth's path to her doom why songbirds have to practice their tunes, and you could soon be taking pills to make you slim and fit. But should you? All this today on Quirks and Quarks. Industrial fishing often raises environmental concerns. When fisheries are mismanaged, our technology is all too adept at vacuuming seafood out of the oceans, leading to population collapses and damage to marine ecosystems. But a new study of a widely used and sometimes controversial fishing technique called bottom trawling has raised a surprising new environmental issue. It turns out that bottom trawling can release a significant amount of carbon from seafloor sediments. And this may be a bigger player in global warming than we knew. Tricia Atwood, an associate professor from Utah State University, was part of the team. Hello, Dr. Atwood. Welcome to Quirks and Quarks.
3: Hello. Thank you for having me.
2: First of all, just describe bottom trawling to me. How does it actually work?
3: So bottom trawling is a type of fishing method um, that is used to collect organisms that live on the bottom of the ocean that we like to eat. So you can think of things like shrimp, sole, flounder. And what they do is they have these big nets that are wide at the front and then kind of taper into the back and they tow them along the bottom of the seafloor, trying to catch these organisms. While doing that, they are scraping the seafloor, and that is causing sediment to be stirred back into the water column.
2: How big are these nets?
3: These nets can be very, very large. Uh, Hmm. So the uh, mouth of a net can be around 250 uh, meters wide. So to put that into perspective, uh, the CN Tower in Toronto is 553 meters tall, so it's about half of that.
2: Wow, that's amazing. And, and so uh, as it's doing this, it's, uh, it's disturbing the mud at the bottom of the ocean? Is that the, the concern that you have?
3: Yeah, so the mud or the sand, whatever type of bottom is, is down there that might be soft, that stores a lot of carbon. So when things fall um, through the water column of the ocean, they land on the seafloor. Over time, they start to get buried there. And if they get buried deep enough, such as carbon, then it can be protected down there for tens of thousands of years.
2: So it's uh, it's coming down from from above. How is it getting into the sediments in the first place?
3: What is coming down from above can be... Uh, Carbon and sediment that was released from nearby rivers or from the coastline. Or it can also be plankton or phytoplankton, which grow in the water column of the ocean. When they die, they will start to sink to the bottom of the ocean. And so they eventually get buried because as that process continues through time, it's adding new layers of sediment and carbon. And whatever was laying there first just gets buried deeper and deeper.
2: So then what effect is the bottom trawling having on the release of this carbon dioxide in the ocean sediments?
3: So normally that sediment would just sit down there, undisturbed, with the exception of maybe some animals that might dig it up a little bit, but nothing on a really big scale. When these boats come across and they are trawling for these fish and scraping that seafloor, they're actually digging into that sediment, sometimes up to 16 centimeters or more. And all of that sediment gets resuspended in the water column. When that happens, that carbon that used to be buried down there now becomes available for microbes to eat. And when microbes eat carbon, just like us, when we eat, they respire CO2.
2: Now, how did you figure out then the, the total effect of this, of uh, the fishing around the world, and how much carbon dioxide is being added to the oceans?
3: We had the fortune of pairing with some amazing scientists that work in different aspects of ocean conservation. One of those groups is Global Fishing Watch. Global Fishing Watch uses automatic identification devices, which are a signal that boats larger than 14 meters have to have to avoid collision. So using that AIS signal they can put that boat into a certain classification. And one of those classifications is that they're trawling. And so once we have that information, we know where global trawling is happening and we know it in almost real time. So once we know where the boats are fishing, we need to know how much carbon is potentially there and how much of it is actually being disturbed by their nets. The next thing that we're kind of missing is how much of that becomes atmospheric CO2. And for that, we worked with NASA scientists as well as other scientists at UC Santa Barbara who use complex ocean models that can track CO2 through the water and it can determine where that CO2 comes out, how much of it comes out, and over what time frame.
2: So when you put all of that together, how much does bottom trawling contribute to global carbon emissions from the oceans?
3: So our estimate is that they are producing somewhere between 340 to 370 million metric tons of CO2 every year.
2: Wow. Were you you surprised by that?
3: Yeah, I I am very surprised by that. So to put that number into perspective, that is about the same amount of total CO2 emissions that the United Kingdom produces every year.
2: Wow. Wow. That's astounding. Uh, now, are there particular regions of the world where there's, there's more trawling, where, where the emissions might be higher?
3: Yeah, so we did identify a couple of locations where there is really intensive trawling, and there is also high carbon storage in the ocean sediments. And those places are off the coast of China, in the North Sea, and other areas uh, where the EU would likely be fishing in their waters. So the Mediterranean is also another one.
2: Now, if the bottom trawling is bringing the carbon dioxide out of the ocean sediment, what about the stuff that stays in the water? What effect does that
3: have? So about 40% of it will remain in the water. It can have different effects. One of it is that it doesn't really influence anything other than it reduces the capacity for the ocean to take up more CO2. Because if you add CO2 there, that space isn't available anymore. And the ocean is one of our most important carbon dioxide sinks. The other thing that can happen in places where you have enclosed seas, so we think about it like as the Mediterranean, where it's not big and open like the Atlantic, is that that CO2 can potentially create localized acidification.
2: And what does that do to the marine life?
3: Ocean acidification is known to be very disruptive to marine life. If it is significant enough, it can start to dissolve the shells of organisms So think of crabs or clams. It can disrupt their um, reproductive uh, cycles. And if it is high enough, which our our studies aren't suggesting that the the CO2 would be high enough to uh, hit these types of acidity levels, but it can outright kill organisms.
2: Dr. Atwood, thank you so much for your time.
3: Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been great.
2: Dr. Tricia Atwood is an associate professor at Utah State University and a marine researcher with National Geographic's Pristine Sea Program. Few animals loom quite as large in our collective imagination as the woolly mammoth. But there's still much to learn about this iconic Ice Age pachyderm. Researchers at the University of Alaska Fairbanks are hoping to change that with a recent study of a 14,000-year-old mammoth tusk found in Alaska. Working with the Healy Lake Village Council and researchers at McMaster and the University of Ottawa, they have used information divined from the tusk to track the mammoth's movements across northwestern Canada and Alaska. And this gives us new insight into the mammoth's lifestyle and relationship to humans. Dr. Matthew Wooler is a scientist at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. Hello, Dr. Wooler. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me today. I really appreciate you taking the time.
2: Now, first of all, tell me about the tusk that you worked with. How was it found?
1: Yeah, so that uh, tusk was found from an archaeological site in interior Alaska uh, back in the 90s, and it was found alongside a very unequivocal evidence of early people. Uh, This included uh, fire pits, hearths, um, but it also included stone tools, as well as the faunal, the animal remains of other animals, uh, including bison.
2: What time period are we talking about
1: here? Yes, we're talking about 14,000 years ago, or thereabouts. And so we were coming out of the last Ice Age And we're starting into what we call the Holocene, which is the last 10,000 years. And that's the kind of relatively warm period that we're in right now. How big is the tusk? It's actually a relatively small tusk. It's about 60 centimeters long. Um, The previous tusk that we worked on was a meter and a half long. There are tusks that I'm working with in the University of Alaska Museum of the North's uh, collection that are over two meters long. Um, they're they're some really massive. Some of them are so big, in fact, I can fit my bald head <laughs> inside their pulp cavity. They're so so big.
2: Well, how did you go about studying this small one? The first thing that we started
1: to do was to split the tusks. So um, I'd like you to imagine that a tusk grows in, in a way, a little bit like, the way I like to describe it, it's a little bit like taking a pointy ice cream cone and then taking a fresh ice cream cone and without the ice cream in and just sticking it inside the previous one and then taking another ice cream cone and sticking that inside that previous cone. And that's how a tusk is grown on an almost daily basis. That gradually builds up to create this 60 centimeter long tusk. And what we wanted to do was to split the tusk to be able to reveal the very central peak of those cones right down the middle and that that line right down the middle is, in fact, the timeline of the entire life of that mammoth.
2: I see. So it's a sort of the tusk version of tree rings, in a way. You're getting the history of the tusk.
1: Yeah, that's a good analogy, actually. Um, we cut it in two pieces lengthwise, but if you were to cut it acrosswise, you'd actually see a whole series of rings, like a tree.
2: Mm-hmm. What kind of analysis do you do once you have it split like that?
1: We did a whole bunch of analyses on that tusk along that lifeline. It included the elements strontium, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, and also sulfur isotopes as well. The key one uh, for determining movement patterns was strontium isotopes. And for that, we actually use a laser. We we fire the laser along that line right down the middle and uh, measure the isotopes of strontium we generate a wiggly line. And from there, we take that data and we know where the mammoth died. And so we take that wiggly line and we back calculate how can we solve for that wiggly line by working backwards and comparing it to a series of isotope maps that we have for uh, Alaska and for the Yukon. And we, we figure out what the most likely pathway that solves for the exact wiggly line that we produce along the lifespan of that, uh, of that mammoth. So that's how we generated the map of where Elma Uge, which is the, um, the formal name for this mammoth, shortened to Alma for short. That's how we figured out where Elma uh, moved. So where did Elma go? She actually moved over a large distance from north of the North American ice sheet in the Yukon, uh, where she spent her juvenile years, her early years growing up. Uh, She then subsequently moved northwest up to what's called the Brooks Range of Mountain. And she did that over a few years. And then she came down to interior Alaska and spent uh, her last three years in and around the region where she eventually uh, died. And wow. she, that was about three years. So in total, she's a 20-year-old adult uh, female mammoth.
2: Were you surprised when you saw how far she wandered? That wasn't the most
1: surprising thing to me, um, because we'd previously measured a male woolly mammoth um, from Alaska that was from 18,000 years ago. That mammoth moved pretty much all over the unglaciated region of Alaska. And we, we straightened out his wiggly line and calculated he could have navigated all the way around the earth <laughs> twice. <laughs> um, so, so the distance wasn't the exciting thing. What struck me was the pattern that we saw because what immediately sprung to our minds was that she ended up dying and spending the last three years of her life in a region with the highest density of the earliest archaeological sites. And so it looked to us immediately like people were situating their hunting camps in regions where it looked like mammoths were frequently uh, turning up.
2: Ah, so it's not like the mammoths were following the people. The people were going to where the mammoths were. Yeah. What was the cause of her death?
1: It's almost certain uh, that she was, she was hunted we have no evidence that she was malnourished she was she looked like she was a healthy mammoth when she died in the prime of her life at 20 years old seems to indicate that elma um, was uh, died from being hunted
2: wow i'm just trying to picture that because mammoths are large animals it must have been taking a lot of courage to try to bring down an animal that big
1: <laughs> yeah almost almost certainly the technology these uh, people had could certainly Um, take down a a woolly mammoth. Very lethal.
2: Now, just one last thing. There's been talk about the possibility of cloning and bringing the woolly mammoth back from extinction. What are your thoughts on this? Well,
1: I should uh, tell you, first of all, that I'm actually on uh, the advisory, the scientific advisory board for one of the leading research companies, bioscience companies, uh, called Colossal, uh, that is actually trying to de-extinct the mammoth. Uh, my opinion on, on this is that if and when we do bring back the woolly mammoth, it's going to be pretty critical that we have this type of research, figuring out herd structure, figuring out movement patterns, because uh, you really need to know some of this fundamental ecology of mammoths uh, if you're if you're thinking about doing that.
2: Dr. Wooler, thank you so much for your time.
1: Bob, it's been a real pleasure. I really appreciate you uh, reaching out to me. Thank you so much.
2: Dr. Matthew Wooler is a scientist at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. <music> Common sense as an idea seems pretty clear cut. The term first used by Aristotle and bandied about by philosophers for centuries thereafter essentially refers to the knowledge that we should all share, even if we don't know how we got it. But scientists from the University of Pennsylvania had a simple question. What exactly is common sense? And in their recently released study, it turns out that common sense isn't all that common after all. Dr. Mark Whiting is a senior computational social scientist at the University of Pennsylvania. He co-led the study. Dr. Whiting, welcome to our program. Thank you. What made you want to look at common sense?
0: Common sense plays a role in so many things that we do in life. It helps us decide what to do when we interact with others, say on the road, or how to go about doing things in our day-to-day lives, like how to cook dinner. It also helps us decide how to communicate with others. For example, when we're writing a scientific paper or writing a piece of news, we decide when to stop explaining things. And... That stop, that point where we think everyone's going to agree or understand what I've already said in the same way, that point, we're starting to rely on the notion of common sense. And so we thought it's a very risky concept. We wanted to dig in deeper.
2: Well, were you looking at common knowledge or common sense in terms of actions?
0: We were primarily looking at common knowledge. So that is ideas that people share or knowledge and facts that people share.
2: Well, what type of other roles does common sense play in our everyday lives?
0: I think the role that it plays that's most critical is in thinking about how we interact with others and the kinds of things we assume others know or understand when we are talking to them about ideas, or perhaps observing them doing things in the world. An example of this that comes to mind is if I'm driving down the street, I might see somebody stop their car relatively in the middle of a, a small one lane road, which we have a lot of, and get out and deliver something or, or get out and talk to a neighbor. And of course, to everyone else, this seems like a lack of judgment. <laughs> it seems like this person is sort of <laughs> thinking very differently about the preferences of, of moving around the world than, than they are. However, those same people will go and do it themselves a few minutes later when, when it's uh, the right thing for them to do or, or the thing that they think is the right thing to do at the time. And so we have this knowledge and and this kind of way of thinking about the world that is sort of our own, um, but we see it as something that everyone should agree with. Uh, And that's where where the trickiness gets in around common sense.
2: Oh, I see. If I believe something, I assume everybody else believes the same thing.
0: At at least for some things, exactly. Yeah.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Well, how exactly did your team test whether common sense was common?
0: Exactly. So... We looked at a large number of examples of things that we had found or created with the help of online participants as being examples of common sense. So that is to say that everything that we looked at is something that somebody somewhere had said was common sense. And then we asked a large number of people to answer two main questions about each of these items. One of the questions was whether or not they thought that item was true. Uh, Something like, you know, is two plus two equal four? And most people answered, yeah, I think that's true. Then we asked them another question, which is, do they think most other people think it's true? And of course, with something like 2 plus 2 equals 4, most people also think most other people think it's true. And then we compare those two answers systematically across the data. And then we checked, did most other people actually say what I thought most other people would say? And this gives us this idea of commonsensicality, sort of my awareness of the common sense of a group.
2: Well, besides the uh, two plus two equals four, can you give me some other examples of statements that you made where you asked, does this make common sense?
0: Sure. So so they, they cover many different categories, from things like philosophy and religion, to science and technology, and sort of everything in between. Um, some examples might be things like triangles have three sides, uh, or something more sort of uh, opinion-oriented, like... We should care for senior citizens as part of society.
2: So when you put all of this together and you finished your survey, what did you find?
0: We found that, of course, different kinds of knowledge had very different levels of commonsensicality. We also found that between people, there were many fewer differences than you might expect in the average level of commonsensicality. So, for example, it wasn't the case that some people, let's say, older people, or better educated people, or richer people, had more common sense. They were all pretty much equal. Uh, And the only distinguishing factor that really showed a strong trend as differentiating people was their ability to read other people's emotions using something called the reading the mind in the eyes test, which is a standard psychometric instrument for evaluating social perceptiveness. And that ended up being predictive of more common sensicality. But in the vast majority of our demographic uh, data, we don't find anything predictive about this. So what this says is that ideas, things like the actual facts that we're we're judging, do have a lot of difference. And depending on the kind of fact, you see very different kinds of common sense. But on the other hand, people tend not to have as much difference, at least in this capacity.
2: So... How common, then, was the common sense?
0: Well, what this really means is that our traditional idea of common sense is that perhaps many people share many common beliefs. But as it turns out from our data, it shows more that any two people may share a lot of beliefs. But as that group gets larger, the number of shared beliefs diminishes to an infinitesimally small portion of the population. Uh, And so you, you, you quickly get a situation where there's basically no common beliefs or, or, or no large set of common beliefs with the population. And this is why we say that common sense is remarkably rare, because in fact, there isn't a thing that we can point to. There isn't a body of knowledge that we can point to that everyone really agrees on.
2: Why is it important to know the role of common sense in our society?
0: There's a range of situations where today we assume that people understand us. And we assume that what we do and what we think is meaningfully representative of what others do and what others think. And I think that turns out to be a lot riskier than people realize. Often the things that we are clear about, we're great at doing, right? We we can communicate very carefully about the things that we think are important. I think the challenge with common sense is that it is inherently uninterrogated. It's the things that we don't think that are important that we overlook in our assumptions about what other people believe. So I I think there's also sort of a ripe opportunity to improve the dynamics around discussing ideas in society under the realization that probably things that we think everyone believes aren't quite there.
2: Dr. Whiting, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Dr. Mark Whiting is a Senior Computational Social Scientist at the University of Pennsylvania.
1: I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings, host of The Big Story. For six years now, we've been telling one story a day, every one of them, about something that matters to Canadians. This spring, though, we're going deeper. The Big Story presents Pay Dirt: the inside story of Ontario's Greenbelt scandal. From political games to stag and doe parties, endangered species, RCMP investigations, and Las Vegas massages, you will hear the full story. The Big Story presents Pay Dirt. New episodes every Monday, and you can get them all by following The Big Story wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Pennsylvania. I'm Bob McDonald, and you're listening to Quirks and Quarks on CBC Radio 1. Coming up later in the program, scientists are developing new drugs to substitute for diet and exercise. And the results are just super. This mouse has
4: been running continuously, without stopping, for nine frickin' hours. I'm pretty sure that this is the longest-running
2: mouse in the history of mice. You know the ancient joke. How do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, practice, practice. Expert singers in every genre, pop, classical, and jazz, all develop their incredible voices through training. Hours of practice, working on their breathing and hitting those high and low notes every day. As it turns out, songbirds don't come by their beautiful songs without practice either. But their audience is pretty specific. And a new study has shown that practice definitely pays off for songbirds. Dr. Iris Adam, a biologist at the University of Southern Denmark in Odense, was part of the study team. Dr. Adam, welcome to Quirks and Quarks. Hi, thanks for inviting me. Now, we're all familiar with how songbirds sound, but how do they actually make their songs?
5: Well, they have a a new vocal organ, um, the syrinx, that's different from our larynx. This is where we Uh, make our sound and they also do have a larynx but they don't use it to make sound so the syringe sits further down in the airways right on top of the heart where the trachea branches into the two bronchi and if you blow air through then uh, that makes sound
2: do they have vocal cords like we do that that open and close and vibrate
5: yes Uh, we call them vocal labia but the biophysical mechanism that makes the sound is exactly the same. So if air, enough air flows through, then they start to oscillate, and um, that's what creates the movement of air that we perceive as sound.
2: They can also make really loud sounds.
5: Yes, they're really good at that. And also they have, uh, they have two voices, actually. So we only have one. We have one pair of vocal folds, and they have two. And in some birds, you can actually hear that.
2: Now, what were you trying to understand about songbird vocals?
5: Uh, So what we tried to figure out is whether the muscles that sit on the vocal organ, on the syrinx, whether they need training to attain their extreme performance. So in adult birds, these muscles are the fastest that we know of in vertebrates. They contract 10 times faster than, for example, our leg muscles. And from a previous study, we knew that this develops with age. So as the birds get older and learn to sing, these muscles get faster. And so our question was very simply, like, how does that work? Why do they get faster? And our main hypothesis was that it's exercise.
2: Well, tell me about your experiment. How did you set it up?
5: What we had to do to um, address our question was we needed to prevent birds from basically using those muscles. So what we did, um, we used two different methods. One was a small surgery where we disconnected the brain from the muscles, basically. So we cut the nerve so that the muscles would not receive any any action potentials anymore from the brain. And then we looked what happened to the muscle. And in a second experiment, um, we simply prevented the birds from being able to sing. And we did that by keeping them in the dark and then switching on the light for feeding sessions where we would be present and prevent them from singing by distracting them.
2: Oh, birds don't sing in the dark.
5: Not all of them. Most of them don't. But the zebra finch that we used never sings in the dark, really not. And so that was a very easy method to keep them from singing.
2: So what did you find when the birds were prevented from singing after a while?
5: In all different experiments that we did, we found one thing, and that is that these muscles got slower and weaker as soon as the bird couldn't use their muscles. So this was already the case after two days where we cut the nerve, and it was also the case after one week of not singing
2: okay so if the muscles got slower and weaker what did that do to the song
5: what we found then is that there is subtle changes in the songs that i cannot hear but when we analyze the songs we could find them in all of the birds that we tested and one of um, the things that changed for example is that their pitch drops so they sound a little bit deeper their voice sounds a little bit deeper than before if i could hear it but my hearing is not good enough for that <laughs>
2: Okay, so you couldn't hear the difference, but uh, how about female birds?
5: Yes, so that's what we did as last experiment. We asked the females if they can hear it because they are the ones these songs are directed to. So they can hear it. Absolutely. We had uh, nine females that got each of them got their uh, little set of playbacks where they could choose between the song of a male before or while he was trained. and the song of a male after he couldn't sing for a week. And six of the eight that actually learned how to do the experiment prefer the trained version of the song. So they go for the exercised muscles and not for the weak ones.
2: Wow. So, so why do you think the females would prefer the, uh, the better song?
5: It tells them that the male had a good time In the past two weeks, that he had a lot of time to sing and he wasn't sick, he was in a good place, he could find food. Because in birds, as soon as they are sick, they stop singing. When they can't find food, they stop singing or they sing less. When there's not enough water around, they sing less. So anything that is sort of a bad condition will make them sing less. And so she can judge just from hearing whether he is healthy and happy and whether there's enough food around and stuff like that.
2: Wow. So when we see birds just sitting there sort of tweeting away on their own, they're not just trying to attract a mate, but they're practicing and exercising.
5: That's what we think, yes, because they have to do it to be ready for the situation where it counts.
2: Well, how do songbirds' vocal muscles respond to so much training under normal conditions?
5: Well, typically they are super fast, and that's what we call them. And they produce very low forces. So that's different from how our leg muscles respond to training. So if you go to the gym and train your your legs, then they will get slower, or those muscles will get slower, and they will get stronger. And in these birds, in these vocal muscles, when the muscles are getting trained, they get faster, and they also get weaker. And that sounds weird now. <laughs>
2: Yeah, it does. It sounds backwards. They, they get faster, but they get weaker.
5: Yes, and that is because the, the getting weaker is a trade-off of getting faster. So if muscles contract faster, they can pr- produce the same force as when they were slower.
2: So what can we learn then from the way birds exercise their voices?
5: I think we can learn how we should exercise our voices. And we know very little about our own vocal muscles. And we can thus also not come up with the best training paradigms for them, in my opinion. So by understanding how bird vocal muscles work, we will understand how human vocal muscles work. And we can maybe come up with really improved voice therapies.
2: Well, you've given new meaning to my singing in the shower. I'm not going to stop. Absolutely. (laughs) No, you shouldn't. Dr. Adam, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Dr. Iris Adam is a biologist at the University of Southern Denmark in Odense. It was the moment when weight loss drugs went mainstream.
0: Everybody looks so great. When I look around this room, I can't help but wonder, is Ozempic right for me?
2: (laughs) At last year's Oscars, Jimmy Kimmel's joke made it clear that everyone was talking about if not actually taking, these new pharmaceuticals called GLP-1 agonists. And they do appear to be wonder drugs. Originally developed for helping to treat diabetes, where they've been life-changing, more recently they've been shown to help people shed up to 20% of their body weight. They're giving those who've been grappling with their weight for years a rare glimmer of hope. But, of course, they're also being used in some cases by those in search of a quick fix, substituting for a healthy lifestyle that includes a better diet and regular exercise. And these aren't the only drugs that could compensate for our modern sedentary lifestyle. There are also new pharmaceuticals currently being investigated that could help reproduce the benefits of exercise chemically. No sweat heavy breathing, or hard work necessary. Just take a pill. But can and should we pursue better living through pharmacology? To understand this better, let's first start with a look at this breakthrough class of GLP-1 drugs that can help with weight loss. They really have been a major scientific achievement. Last year, the prestigious journal Science designated it the 2023 breakthrough of the year. This year
4: we selected what are known as GLP-1 receptor agonist drugs. These are a class of drugs that are being used very successfully to treat type 2 diabetes and especially obesity. This year in particular, what got us especially excited is that the drugs also have been shown to reduce the risk of some health problems that are associated with obesity, like heart attacks, strokes, and the symptoms of heart failure.
2: Dr. Daniel Drucker is a Canadian research pioneer who's worked on advancing the science of these drugs since the 1980s. He's a senior scientist and clinician at the Lunenfeld Tannenbaum Research Institute at Mount Sinai Hospital and a professor of medicine at the University of Toronto. Hello, Dr. Drucker. Welcome to Quirks and Quarks.
6: Thanks. Great to be here.
2: First of all, can you take me through in a very basic way how these drugs work? I understand it has something to do with insulin levels.
6: So GLP-1 is a hormone and these drugs circulate in our bodies and they talk to the pancreas and they increase the amount of insulin, reduce the amount of glucagon. That helps lower blood sugar and they also slow the rate at which food moves along through our stomach, and that helps reduce the rate of blood sugar. And they also talk to the brain and simply send signals to our brain that says, you know what, you're just not hungry, you don't need to
2: eat as much. And that's how they work. What are some of the potential benefits beyond type 2 diabetes and obesity that scientists have started to see with these drugs? The most
6: well-established benefit that's really important is a reduction in heart attacks, strokes, cardiovascular death and all cause mortality. That's why we treat these chronic conditions. Most people won't, you know, be overly ecstatic just by lowering their blood sugar or by losing some weight. That's nice. But if you tell them, you know, you have a 20% lower risk of dying, that's really important. And that's the major benefit of these medicines.
2: Now, what other chronic conditions can it deal with?
6: So it's being explored in a number of situations. We just saw a recent press release from one of the companies suggesting that there's a reduction in the rate of kidney disease. There are trials underway in people with addiction-related disorders, metabolic liver disease, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, peripheral vascular disease. So there's quite a, a large number of chronic medical conditions where this medicine is being explored.
2: It almost sounds like a miracle drug here. I'm reminded of the old snake oil side. You know, people back who said, oh, I've got the the elixir. This will fix everything that's happening. It It almost sounds too good to be true.
6: Yeah, I think we certainly don't expect that all of these indications will prove to be benefited by the use of GLP. And we have to be cautious and wait for the data. But as a reminder, you know, we've had these medicines for 18 and a half years for type 2 diabetes for about 10 years for people with obesity. So we've learned a lot about how they work and the safety. But for the new indications, we simply need to wait for the larger phase three trials before we can decide whether or not this is a a wonder drug or simply a really useful medicine for some, but not all conditions.
2: Well, walk me through how you investigated what could be behind all these potential benefits.
6: So I was very lucky. In the 1980s, I went to learn some new science in in Boston at the Massachusetts General Hospital. And one of the experiments I did showed that it stimulated insulin secretion, and that really started the ball rolling. But really, over the last few decades, we've looked at the control of food intake, we've looked at how GLP-1 regulates kidney and heart disease. You know, just a few weeks ago in January, we had a a new story on how GLP-1 controls inflammation through the brain. So it's really, for me, three and a half decades of simply asking, how does it work and how does it do what it does? And we use a whole bunch of models in the lab to try and answer those questions.
2: Well, let's just take one example. How would these work in, say, the heart?
6: So... We know that what GLP-1 does is lowers blood pressure. It lowers the amount of fat that your uh, gut releases after you eat a meal. It has receptors directly in the heart that seem to be beneficial when activated. It lowers inflammation in the heart. And one can also lose weight and have indirect benefits in the heart. So I can't give you a single... Uh, direct mechanism that explains everything. But there are probably four or five ways that it improves the risk of having heart disease.
2: How widely do you think these drugs should be prescribed for otherwise healthy people who just want to shed some pounds?
6: Well, you know, as I think you and your listeners know, we have a a, a shortage of these medicines now. The main manufacturers, Novo Nordisk and Eli Lilly, I think were caught somewhat unaware of the tremendous demand, and they're building new expensive plants. But this takes billions of dollars and years for the plants to come online. So right now in many countries, it's difficult to find these medicines. And so if we know these medicines primarily benefit people with type 2 diabetes and people with uh, heart disease and people living with obesity and heart disease. That's really where we should be focusing our current attention. You know, at some point in the future, if we have an unlimited supply of these medicines and we have really good data about how to use these for weight loss in other populations, that's great. Let's have
2: those conversations. If people do take these drugs and see the benefits of of weight loss, do they have to keep taking the drugs or can they maintain their weight loss with exercise and diet?
6: The vast majority of people, when they stop the medicines, will gain back most of the weight. So this is a really important area for future research. You know, Why does our brain try and return our bodies to the former higher uh, body weight? Now, there are some medicines under development that, when stopped, seem to have maintained people at their new lower weight. But that needs to be studied more carefully. Are there specific risks that you're concerned about? So the, the the general risks of using these medicines are predominantly gastrointestinal: they're nausea, diarrhea, vomiting. Much less commonly, uh, gallbladder events. Uh, even less commonly, if one gets dehydrated, there's a rare risk of injuring your kidneys. But for the most part, we've now had the opportunity to look at much. More infrequent side effects like pancreatitis or pancreatic cancer or other types of cancer. And we really don't see an increased risk of these events. So there have been some reports of, you know, people with uh, small bowel obstruction problems or some people who feel terrible uh, and and don't want to continue taking the medicine. and, And we respect those individual reports. But for the most part, these are not new medicines. We have almost two decades of uh, studying these medicines in the clinic. And I think the safety record is pretty well established. But we, we never know what we don't know, and it's always important to keep studying the safety.
2: Well, with so many potential benefits, again, it sounds like a miracle drug. Should we really use drugs as a substitute for a healthy lifestyle? So there's no question that, you know, we have
6: a worldwide epidemic of people challenged by obesity, including some of our our young children and and adolescents. And so our approach to dealing with this epidemic has to be multi-pronged. So we need to look at education in schools surrounding nutrition. We need to look at food insecurity. We need to build neighborhoods that are supportive of exercise and walking. We need to have healthy foods that are available without inexorbitant cost. But all of those efforts will take time. And if today someone is sitting across the desk from me as a physician, and they say, you know what, Dr. Drucker, I'm living with type two diabetes and obesity. I have a risk of heart disease. Is there anything you can do for me now we now have very powerful GLP-1-based medicines that can help people in ways that we couldn't before. So GLP-1's not the solution. We can't throw away our ongoing efforts to really look at this issue across society. But it's a new effective tool that will really improve the health of many individuals.
2: Dr. Drucker, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Dr. Daniel Drucker is a clinician scientist at the Lunenfeld Tannenbaum Research Institute at Mount Sinai Hospital and professor of medicine at the University of Toronto. Now, these GLP-1 agonist drugs have been around longer than many people realize. They were first approved here in Canada more than a decade ago to treat type 2 diabetes. But a new and different class of drugs aimed not at helping with weight loss, but a duplicating the broad effects of exercise may be on the horizon. Drugs like this could have powerful therapeutic effects for people who, through disease or disability, can't reap the wide-ranging physical and mental benefits of physical activity. But for the rest of us, well, we'd like to be fit as well as slim. So, Would you take a drug that could give you most of the benefits of exercise without actually, you know, exercising? Dr. Ronald Evans from the Salk Institute in La Jolla, California, has been working on this new class of drugs. Dr. Evans is a professor of biology and the director of the Salk Institute's Gene Expression Laboratory. Hello and welcome to our program. Hi, thank you for inviting me. Now, first of all, how does exercise itself work to make us healthier?
4: Well, we're designed uh, as people to move in our environment, and so that is the basis of exercise, whether it's walking, jogging, running, picking things up, weightlifting, that sort of thing. We are good at moving in our environment and manipulating our environment, and it is really part of who we are. But in the modern era, there's a lot more sedentary behavior, and with that becomes increased weight uh, and obesity, and it changes the whole nature of our health. And so understanding what exercise is, and it's a series of genetic circuits, one of the things that we study, and how we turn those on and off, you do that naturally by running or jogging. And if you don't move, those Mm -hmm. circuits are quiet. So we have a way of genetically uh, tapping into that network and turning these circuits on and off. We like to see if we can get some very healthful benefits from this. And so that's the kind of area that we are trying to develop.
2: So which of these circuits that you're talking about are you trying to tap into to get some of the benefits of exercise without actually doing the exercise?
4: So one of the observations that we made, and I think in 1995, that we discovered a particular master gene in our bodies that's designed to promote energy burning. So that activates the gene networks that are involved in energy consumption that are the same networks that you would be activating when you're actually exercising or when you're running or taking a brisk walk. But uh, because we identified the master regulator of those circuits, we're able to develop a drug that actually hits that particular regulator it's called PPAR Delta. And so we can make small molecules that can interact with those circuits and activate them in a way that would naturally be activated by actual physical exercise.
2: Now, I know that you've tested this extensively in mice. So tell me about the moment when you realized just how powerful a drug like this could be.
4: Well, that's a great question and it was a rather crazy observation because we thought that it would just burn down fat and it'd be a way of burning energy but to burn energy you're activating the tissues that are designed to burn energy and they mobilize the energy from your adipose depot and and distribute nutrients around the body so when we flip that genetic switch First, there was a significant increase in the ability of the mice that received the drug to run on a mouse treadmill. And mice can run for a, about an hour without stopping. But we found that in our initial studies that the mice that got the drug ran for two hours, no training. And so then we started training mice. and You can train mice and they'll they'll adapt and they'll begin to run longer. And the same thing, if we give more of the drug, they begin to run longer. (laughs) So
2: what was the longest that you got a mouse to run?
4: Uh, I had one of my postdocs who went in at 3 p.m. in the afternoon to put his mouse on the treadmill. And at six o'clock, he called his wife and just said, you know, just go ahead and have dinner. The mouse still going. And then... At eight o'clock, he said, Go ahead and put the kids to bed. The mouse is still running. And at 10 o'clock, he told her to go to bed <laughs> because the mouse is still running. <laughs> and now it's midnight. This mouse has been running continuously without stopping for nine freaking hours. I'm pretty sure that this is the Holy longest cow. running mouse in the history of mice.
2: <laughs> That's astounding. Now, we know that exercise has a lot of benefits throughout the body besides just losing some weight. What are the range of benefits that you've seen targeting this system with the drugs?
4: Probably the biggest components there would be increase in heart activity. The other thing is general muscle. You can increase your endurance capacity, and that lets you do things with increased activity. It changes a little bit of Your thermogenesis, that is burning energy, and that's how you get rid of calories, as in the form of heat that's being released from your body because of the exercise that you're doing, that will reduce your adipose tissue. That's going to reduce your obesity if you're overweight, and you're going to increase your oxidative properties in your body. So these are all very good things that are happening the same way that exercise would do it. We're seeing that in the drug, you have better properties in heart disease, liver is improved, and something called macrophages. These are inflammatory cells that are the scavengers that clean things up in the body. And these cells also do well.
2: What about effects on
4: the brain? The brain is very responsive to exercise and the brain is actually controlling what you're doing. And so the brain's very active when you are jogging or exercise You're just moving your environment. You're processing visually. You're processing tactically. And so it has a lot of different benefits that we find that are rather striking, including things like balance. Mm. Mice that have the drug do a lot better.
2: (laughs) Now, can a mouse burn fat if you give it the drug, but it doesn't move at all?
4: Yeah. That mouse, it'll burn fat and it will get into better shape without any intrinsic exercise
2: are there likely to be risks associated with these drugs
4: we have designed and built a ppr delta drug designed for people and that's gone through what's called phase two trials Mm -hmm. those are trials that are going on the goal for that particular one was trying to look at a aspect of uh, kidney disease and What we learned from that is that the drug is entirely safe. As far as they can tell, it's been in a lot of people and had a potentially important benefit on the heart that turned up. And, you know, I'm cautiously excited by the results. If you get through phase three, then you go to the FDA and you you can potentially seek approval for it.
2: Now, we've known for a long time that an important key to a healthy lifestyle is to just eat less and exercise. So do you imagine there could be problems with people wanting to replace a healthy lifestyle with just taking a drug?
4: You're correct. It's important, but it's also the reality that it's not something that you can tell people to do and they will do it. So therapy or drugs like this could be very important because if you don't activate those circuits, that's like the worst thing that you can do, especially over a long period of time. And so I do think you have to consider what is the benefit physiologically from activating these circuits as opposed to leaving them sedentary.
2: Dr. Evans, thank you so much for your time. Very welcome. Thank you. Dr. Ronald Evans is a professor and director of the Gene Expression Laboratory at the Salk Institute in California. And that's it for Quirks and Quarks this week. If you'd like to get in touch with us, our email is quirks at cbc.ca or just go to the contact link on our webpage at cbc.ca slash quirks where you can read my latest blog or listen to our audio archives. You can also follow our podcast or get us on the CBC Listen app. It's free from the App Store or Google Play. Quarks and Quarks was produced by Rosie Fernandez, Amanda Buckowitz, Sonia Biting, and Mark Crawley. Our senior producer is Jim Lemons. I'm Bob McDonald. Thanks for listening.
1: For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca podcasts.